Cyber Command has been around since 2010, but it has never had an independent acquisition program until now. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr got the details last week at the TechNex Cyber Conference in Baltimore. Alexandra, how are we today? Just great. Thanks, Eric. How are you? I'm good. So what can you tell me about the background on this story? So Cybercom stood up in 2010, and it was not seen as quite as maybe as important as it is today. Then over time, we've seen the threats from the solar wind cyber attack, Log4j, election threats, the kind of cyber attacks we're seeing during the Ukrainian war. And suddenly, Cybercom has a much more prominent role as a military service. And whereas before you saw those cyber threats being addressed maybe by law enforcement, now it's taken on, you know, a full blown threat reaction as a military answer. Here's Michael Clark, Cybercom's Director of Cyber Acquisition and Technology, talking about that background. Whereas prior to 2018, principally the, the nation's response to cyber activity, malicious cyber activity, was either law enforcement or diplomatic action. But now that we actually saw military threats to our national institutions, our elections, things started to change. Congress redefined what was allowable from a military operations perspective in cyberspace, that now we were allowed to operate outside of a declared hostile zone. And so Cybercom had to buy something, right? So what did Cybercom have in terms of an acquisition ability? When they started, it was really small. The idea is that they they really wouldn't be that involved in it, and that would be farmed out to other services. So the Army was in charge of training. uh, The Air Force was in charge of command and control and their data fabric. And as they were going through this, it wasn't really working. They weren't getting quite what they needed. It became apparent that they would need their own acquisition authority. Here's Michael Clark again. It wasn't until 2016 that the command got acquisition authority, $70 million, and it was going to sunset in 2021. So it was only meant to be there for five years. Then what allowed that to expand, I guess? Well, as they looked at it, uh, Paul Nakasani, the, the head of Cyber Command, agreed that they needed to have their own acquisition authority. He went through the Secretary of Defense. He went through Congress. And they started building up a plan to expand and be independent, of particularly of the Air Force. And they wanted to model their acquisition program on special forces. Special forces is kind of known as an acquisition program that's light on its feet. It gets things done quickly. And so that was the model they had going forward. Here's Michael Clark. So working with Congress and with the secretary, we got language that within the next five years, by FY27, Cyber Command will assume the acquisition milestone decision authority over the warfighting platform. An incredible advancement. So now we have the money, the $3.2 billion dollars, We have the acquisition responsibility that's going to be built over time. I'm not going to be able to do that today. To be able to drive, General Nakasone's number one priority for me is help me make a ready force. That's Michael Clark, the head of acquisition for Cybercom. We're speaking with Alexandra Lohr, Federal News Network reporter. And so, Alexandra, what does Cybercom need to do to move forward? 
Well, they've got some big plans, Eric. One thing they're going to do is this year, they're going to start a cyber weapons program management office. And that's going to be built out with the help of the Air Force. They'll reimburse the Air Force and then eventually take it over on their own independently. They plan to have the directorate assume the acquisition decision authority over the warflight fighting platform. And then they have this money. They're kind of ready to get going. But what they don't have is a skilled workforce. Clark says that he has authorization for 24 entry-level positions this year. And those are basically kids out of college. But they're they're there to build a foundation for what he's trying to do. In the end, though, he's really going to need up more staff if he's going to accomplish this kind of ambitious goals. Here's what he had to say about it. I'm aspirational. If I can get the people, that's my Achilles heel right now. And that's why I need to recruit all of you is that to build it is the people part of this is the Achilles heel of all this. By FY25, I want to be able to have that PEO office stood up and and begin doing PEO responsibilities for the components that I'm actually building within the command today. Recruitment in the cyber field remains a challenge for the Defense Department and everyone, pretty much. That was Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Alexandra, thank you so much for your reporting. Thanks very much, Eric. You can find more of Alexandra's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from 
formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. She would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have 
you mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.